Hello friends and listeners, Evan here. Before we get into today's episode, just a brief reminder that we are about a week away from the end of the year, and we're in the midst of a $25,000 matching challenge, and we have made some amazing progress so far, and it's only because of the people who have decided to give. In order for us to unlock that matching gift of $25,000, to raise $25,000 from other people. If you've already decided to give, thank you so much. It means a lot. It's what makes things like this podcast possible. Each and every gift just really makes a difference. So if you're interested in partnering with us and doubling your impact today, you can visit faith.yale.edu slash give to make a donation of any amount. And either way, thanks for listening. For the Life of the World is a production of the Yale Center for Faith and Culture. For more information, visit us online at faith.yale.edu. This is For the Life of the World, a podcast about seeking and living a life worthy of our humanity. I'm Evan Rosa with the Yale Center for Faith and Culture. The countdown to Christmas is quickly coming to an end. Trees are already drying out. Wish lists to Santa have been signed and sent. Parents are dressing up as the Grinch and filming themselves as they steal presents from their screaming children, thereby assuring the need for their progeny's future therapy. And I'm not joking about that. It's all over social media. But on a warmer note, all four candles on our Advent wreaths have been lit. Many of us are looking forward to plans with the people we love some homemade cookies, sweets, exchanging gifts, and a strange yet delightful holiday limbo between Christmas and New Year's Day. And we just know that the season can be a bit more complicated than one-size-fits-all holiday cheer. The nights are as long and dark as they get for those of us in the Northern Hemisphere. Travel plans are going awry. Half the country is below freezing. For many of us, there's still work projects to finish before the new year. Final papers still to write and loved ones were missing this holiday season. So yes, December can be bittersweet. The glorified joy of Christmas impending, and yeah, we're all still human, living in a complicated, often difficult world. So here at the Yale Center for Faith and Culture, we've been thinking about the complexity of Advent this month. What should this wait for Christmas look like? On the church calendar, we're anticipating the arrival of a savior not yet come. It's a time of real darkness, yet excitement, and knowing that as Mary nears the stable, God is on the way. So we've been asking, what does it look like to live into the spirit of this season, to be Advent people? Well, to understand the tension, maybe find some answers. Turning back to the spirit of For the Life of the World episodes past, we'll hear from guests Drew Collins, Frederica Matthews-Green, Jeff Reimer, and Matt Crosman. And each of these reflections look to characters who, in their own unique ways, find real intimacy with Advent and the wait for Christmas. They depict the complexity of Christmas. As we navigate our way through a holiday season precariously harnessed by both consumerism and Christian theology, we hope you'll enjoy hearing about the Magi, the extra-canonical portrait of the Virgin Mary, W.H. Auden's depiction of Joseph, and finally, Santa Claus and St. Paul. Thanks for listening, and we'll kick it off with Drew Collins' conversation with me from episode 43, where we discuss the Magi in the Gospel of Matthew. What can we learn from the Magi in terms of their intellectual, their spiritual, their, their moral stance in response to 
the light of this star, whatever it is, and whoever they are. The scripture in Matthew is presented to us with an opportunity to see how these righteous searchers responded to God's call. And I wonder what you think Mm. we ought to be focusing on and, and, and what we ought to learn from the Magi. Rather than, rather than describe the Magi's pursuit or following of the star as a function of their knowledge and their wisdom, I would say it actually, it reveals um, that their wisdom lay um, precisely in their ability to confront and embrace the limits of their, of their knowing, of their own certainty. The star does not behave like any star they would have experienced, they would have encountered before. The star stands um, as an exception, obviously, a massive exception to the way stars and uh, astral bodies normally behave. Of course. So rather than uh, a sort of an affirmation of the, of the wisdom of astrology, this is, I think the star stands in some senses as a, as a rebuke. The star brings the magi to the edges of their wisdom. It brings them, it forces them to look over the precipice of um, everything they know about the way stars and astral bodies behave. It brings them to the limits of their own knowledge and forces them to entertain the possibility that something is happening beyond their understanding. And it's important to say the same thing. They were alerted. They weren't, they were alerted to that by attending to their science, by attending to their astrology. Um, it was because they were paying attention to the sky that they saw this star. So there's a certain affirmation of what they were doing, uh, their, of their sort of concern for creation, their attentiveness um, to the world around them. But at the same time, there's an undermining of the, uh, of, of hmm. the extent to which that will provide them with the knowledge that they need, the knowledge of who Jesus is. Drew continues on to share his perspective on the end of the Magi story, the gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Drew explains how this familiar part of the story reveals quite a lot about God's spirit of giving. Well, there's just this extraordinary, you know, again, this is non-Jews, these Gentiles, um, who at the conclusion of the story, we have no reason to think that they have any real understanding of who it is they've just met. They call him the king of the Jews, but that could mean, as we know, that that could mean an, any number of things, depending on how you understand the kingship. They come and they bring these three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. We're taught in, 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 as Christians that God, God is the gift giver. It is God who gives the gift of life to the world and um, the gift of, of God's love. God is the, f- the fount of creation and, and everything comes from God. And yet here we have these non-Jews giving gifts to God. We talk again, we focus, all, we focus so much on the giving of the gifts, but we don't ever talk about the fact that God received them. I think that, you know, one way of saying it is God's giving is, is so radical. It's so total that even in God's receiving the gifts that we bring, however paltry and imperfect they are, God is also giving. Huh. And, and what he is giving 
in receiving the gifts of the Magi. He's, God's giving us the hope that our own lives, scruffy and flawed, um, might be received by others yeah. um, as giving, like the Magi, greater insight into who Jesus is and might be rede- received and redeemed by God in the coming of God's kingdom. The Magi, in their beautiful role in the Nativity, were not the only ones who found their way to the stable at Jesus' birth. We all likely know the story of Mary and Joseph's journey there, on a donkey, turned away from the inn. Frederica Matthews Green invites us into a new portrait of Mary, not quite as commonly known, a portrait from the extra-canonical text, The Gospel of Mary. This ancient text can fill in some imaginative gaps about who Mary was and her significance to the Christian understanding of Christmas. This is a story that it's from internal textual evidence. It's clearly not a text originally, but like a folk tale that passed around to the Middle East and spread from there. It's been found in eight different ancient languages. People loved it. They shared it everywhere. And it's a story that probably satisfies some curiosity that those who love Jesus After a while, they'd start saying, well, what was his mother like? And where did she grow up? And what were her parents like? And they want to know the prequel. They want to know the story beforehand. Mm. How historically accurate is this story is a a question. One thing we can notice is that it it claims to have been written by James, the brother of Jesus, James, the brother of the Lord. And he also wrote the epistle of James. So we can see that the early church said the epistle of James belongs in the New Testament. This protevangelion of James, maybe not so much, but it's okay for you to read it just for inspiration. We can't claim that it is, it is all exactly historical, but much of it is reasonable. And I'd like to ask you about that in particular. I think you describe it as whether it is historically accurate is perhaps less, less important than thinking of it as a typological or inspirational story mm-hmm. about how the early church thought about Mary and how it would amplify and expand on her own biography. Yes, that's true. And I think if you look at a Christian book website today or go in a Christian bookstore, mm-hmm. there'll be a whole section of fiction that's like fan fiction. Right. And the authors are not claiming that every word is historical, but they do believe that what they're writing gives us, increases our love for these biblical characters yeah. and gives reasonable images of what they might have done and tells, teaches us more about the ambiance and the, the context So we can look at it as that kind of a story. At the same time, it may have things that are completely historic. It starts out saying her father Joachim was rich and he used to go to the temple and he'd make an offering for himself and also one for the people. Hmm. And you're thinking, that's the first sentence. Who is Joachim? I never heard of him. So it, it assumes you already know something about this prequel material. And it sets Mary in this very clear context where, like the conception of John the Baptist, she has elderly parents there. This is an example of a very pious, elderly, but wealthy couple. Hmm. And miraculously, Anna becomes pregnant. And the, the part about this story that's most controversial is Anna vows, just as Hannah did when she was pregnant with Samuel, Mm. if I have a child, Anna says, whether it's a boy or a girl, I will give it to the temple. Mm. And so when Mary is three years old, they deliver her to the temple, and the Protevangelion says she grows up there. Wow. 
sort of like, you know how when it describes the story about Simeon speaking to Mary, there's a prophetess Anna there and says she yeah. never leaves the temple day and night. Yep. She's living in the temple. I, I don't know that there's any historic evidence for this, but there must have been all through history women who prayed to get pregnant and who, like the example of Hannah, said, I will give my child to the temple. And so yeah. the priests are being confronted with all these toddlers. <laughs> you know, what are the, these are weaned children about three years old. And they're being, here you go. Wow. And there must have been some provision for women and mothers who might well live in the temple and care for these children till they're old enough to help be, you know, little servers during the service. Right. Something like that. We don't know whether it's true. Scholars always say, no, Mary was not raised in the temple. But I do wonder about that likelihood that women would have gone on making that vow. They had that example of Hannah. They thought that was what they were supposed to do. Yeah. Interesting thing. It's very interesting. It also presents like a depiction of the contemplative life in that period of Judaism, mm -hmm. one which is dedicated to fasting and prayer, as it describes Anna yes. in the temple. It's fascinating to think of Mary in that context, because Mary, as we talked about last time, is this ponderer. She's a contemplative. She yes. responds yes. in a very inward way. And, and of course, her, her response is a kind of, that there's, it starts with perplexity, but it's that faith that seeks understanding kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good example of it. And as she grows up in the temple, probably it's likely that she would have increased in prayer. Mm -hmm. She would have practiced prayer, maybe ceaseless prayer. And pondered her life and what was going to become of her and what she was called to do. Mm -hmm. We Orthodox believe that she was able to achieve a degree of devotion and unity with God. Mm -hmm. That her prayer had become so profound that she actually had achieved what we call theosis. Osis is a suffix that means a process, yeah. like osmosis, like we learned in school. Like we have a white cotton garment and put it in um, red dye, the, the dye will creep up by a process of mm -hmm. osmosis. That's how you, you know, get the, these shadowed garments. Yeah. So theosis means to absorb God, like you were that white garment absorbing the dye. Yeah. Or an example frequently used by the fathers is a piece of metal in a furnace. It, we don't actually mm -hmm. see that except in movies these days, but yeah. how the, the metal actually takes on all the energy and properties of fire. Yeah. So we believe that Mary had mastered the art of prayer and of union with God during those years that she was in the temple praying. Wow, that's amazing. I mean, it, contextualize that with that kind of unity and that kind of absorption. I love that metaphor mm -hmm. for it, that absorbing of God in the context of that's leading up to hearing the Annunciation wow, from yeah. Gabriel, the angel, it still kind of presents yeah. itself as this, like, there's still an opportunity for surprise. She's not so absorbed that it's not, it's still not an ordinary kind of thing to be addressed <laughs> as such. And so I wonder, sure. so, I, so let's draw out a little bit of like the kind of practical spirituality of 
theosis on its way to annunciation. Yes, yes. And another factor is just maturity as a child becomes a teenager and then an adult. Sure. That what she was able to understand about what she was experiencing. Mm. There's like a purity it, to to the experience of the mm. world in a child. And and that does it is kind of drawn out here in in this gospel of Mary. Mm, it's a very sweet story. And then, as you say, then there's the Annunciation, the appearance of the angel Gabriel who speaks to her, and she's clearly bewildered and I would be reasonable to say nervous. Right. And she wants to, one thing, make sure that this really is a divine and not a demonic apparition. Sure. So she, she would have a lot going on at that moment. And when she understood that she was saying yes to God, hmm. You know, if you're not certain about anything else, it's always safe to say yes to God. And so she does. Mary, we know, was not the only one in the nativity narrative who said yes to God. Joseph had his own unique test of faith to face. Last year, Jeff Reimer joined me on episode 97 to discuss W.H. Auden's For the Time Being, a Christmas oratorio originally published in 1944. Written just as Auden was recovering his own faith, in a war-torn world, the poem is a sobering and austere retelling of the Christmas narrative. And in this clip, Jeff and I discuss Auden's portrait of Joseph. Let's contrast that with Joseph. There's all sorts of rejoicing. You get the chorus coming in. Let, as you said earlier, let number and weight rejoice. Mm-hmm. Singing and dancing, let even the great rejoice. There's a way, there's a voice. Let even the small rejoice, let even the young rejoice, let even the old rejoice. And there's all sorts of singing and dancing. Uh-huh. And then we get to Joseph. Auden's Joseph is sitting in a bar. His shoes shined, my pants were cleaned and pressed, and I'm hurrying out to meet my own true love. So he's waiting for Mary. And the depiction of Joseph is one, one place I wanted to hone in on. Yeah. Because... The theology of, or maybe even the phenomenology of what it's like to be Joseph mm-hmm. in response to this, I think Auden's treatment of it is very fascinating. Yeah. I've noticed, and this is my experience too, a lot of people on their first read through, this is the first part they really connect with. Um, oh, interesting. I have to say that's the case for me too. He talks about, let me see if I can find it here. Today the roles are altered. You must be the weaker sex whose passion is passivity. Yeah. So you see Joseph having to atone even for the shortcomings and failures of his sex. The role reversal, I think, is an important factor here. Yeah. And it's a little bit of a nod to the kind of feminism that emerges from the Christmas story, which is the leadership needs to come from Mary here. The faithfulness needs to come through Mary and Joseph has to, the question he's faced with is, should I believe her? Yeah. And that's the temptation, right? This section for Auden is the temptation of St. Joseph. Mm-hmm. And whereas Mary's response is one of joy and, and it's a yes, Joseph's response to Gabriel, at least for Auden here, is one of demanding a proof. Yeah. So give me a reason to believe her. Yeah. And man, I, I just, I'm amazed by what this section does at a kind of like cultural level when we're thinking about gender 
and the interaction between men and women. And, um, and so he said, so Joseph says, how then am I to know father that you are just to give me one reason? Gabriel's response, just no. (laughs) Yeah. Right. All I ask is one important and elegant proof that what my love had done was really at your will and that your will is love. Gabriel responds, no, you must believe. Be silent and sit still. (laughs) That's so good. And he does. That's the last thing he says. Joseph doesn't say anything more until the very end when they're in the flight to Egypt. Oh, see, that's amazing. And this is to take it out of the gendered context for a moment and just say that Joseph really is standing in our position for humanity in this moment, Mm -hmm. right? Because Mm -hmm. this is an experience and an appearance that's just to marry. That's what the Annunciation is. It's not public. It's not broadcast to the world. We are left with faith in this incarnation of God in the body of a woman. And we're left with the challenge of taking her at her word. Yeah. And it's always a scandal. The virgin birth is a, has always been a scandal. Yeah. This section is very autobiographical for Auden. Oh, interesting. In, in many ways, he's writing about himself. He had been involved with his relationship with Chester Coleman, lifelong, kind of considered himself married to him, found yeah. out that was not going to be the case. Mm-hmm. And he had to decide whether to choose to love or to hate in response to this. And so I, I think that's another part, yeah. an, another reason why so many people connect with it because it's, it just feels very personal and interior. And I think that's because it came straight from Auden's heart. Yeah. The chorus ends our section on the temptations of St. Joseph with these lines, blessed woman, excellent man, redeem for the dull, the average way that common ungifted natures may believe that their normal vision can walk to perfection. The average way really stands out to me. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about the average way and how that is expressive of for the time being as a whole. Yeah, so much of this poem is is about redeeming the the mundane and the quotidian. Mm -hmm. You know, what what Walker Percy calls everydayness. When I first sort of dug into this poem for real, I was reading a lot of Walker Percy too. And just- I love Walker Percy. The ideas that they're sharing are- Amazing. They're reading a lot of the same people. I don't think Auden and Percy knew each other. They were contemporaries. But but yeah, Percy was himself a Kierkegaard reader. Yep. Yeah. And so what do you do when, in Percy's phrase, what do you do when it's four o'clock on Wednesday and the whole world just falls flat before you? Auden is trying to think through what that looks like. You know, Advent and Christmas provide this contrast of significance and meaning and transcendence. Mm -hmm. But so much of human life and living a good life might just be unspectacular. And it might be the way to redemption, actually. Just living a good, quiet life outside of what our sort of societal notions of success and fame are. That's actually good, and that's worth pursuing. Auden's Mary and Joseph ask us to consider how common lives, 
may be the way to a good life. This Advent conversation wouldn't be complete without a look at the mysterious, magical figurehead of this season, perhaps written by the Coca-Cola company, Santa Claus himself. In episode 43, Matt Krausman joined me to discuss the common theme in recent Christmas movies, which we're about to discuss, that depict Santa needing our joy. In these stories, Santa is usually found in the conundrum that Christmas simply cannot happen for one reason or another, unless the public believes and has some kind of holiday spirit. Matt unpacks for us the tension that comes with this eschatology of cheer alongside Christian ideas of joy and the writings of St. Paul. Here's that conversation. To hone in in particular on the relational component of this, right? The shared life. Uh, I mean, there's, there's a shared attempt at collectively running Santa's sleigh that when we sing together, then yes, uh, the sleigh runs again. But it's fascinating that it's not the that it's not the alternative, right? That 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 when we mourn together, because in fact that might be where the difference gets made. It's when we are communicating with one another in solidarity at our lowest points. That's when we see a, a real difference in what it means to flourish. I think that's I think that's right, and I, and I think theologically, the the difference there is we could say one of eschatologies <laughs> santa santa has an overrealized eschatology <laughs> um, say more about that what what do you mean by that right so so christian christian joy in that same chapter in romans um paul says paul invites us to rejoice in hope and be patient in suffering persevere in prayer and and it's the fact that all christian joy i take it is rejoicing in hope. Now, now you can rejoice in hope in the presence of some partial fulfillment of what you hope for, right? So I'm not saying all of our joy is, you know, that, that there are no genuine causes for joy in the world as we experience it. Of course there are, right? Um, but there's a fundamental character of Christian joy that is joy in hope in this life, right? Because we have this eschatological orientation that, that has the kingdom of God, yes, breaking in, um, in, in uh, here and there in places always with incompletion and always uh, with less than our full, um, at least I'll speak for myself, less than our full sort of devotion to it. We're always weak in our own sort of <laughs> commitment to it. Um, and yet with hope that that someday the kingdom will be established in, in its fullness. Again, if there's ever, if there's ever a moment for sort of where Christian joy looks yeah, as fully realized <laughs> as it is in sort of the Santa myth, it would it would be in the fully it would be in the world of perfect love. It would be in the in in God having fully sort of made remade the world as God's home. Um, in that world, um, then yes, then maybe the the rule is or the the way of life is that we rejoice always and only. But it's because we have this eschatological character. We we rejoice in hope um, that our joy always, I take it, has this, has this um, different sort of uh, orientation towards the world. Our joy has to be, has to have a truthful orientation to the world as it actually is. Hmm. And, and that world is not as it is not yet as it should be, not fully. 
in, in places here and there. And sometimes deeply and profoundly in ways that, that bring just un, unfiltered, uncomplicated occasions for joy, right? Because God created the world and, and, and its goodness will just like uh, appear to us in moments. And there are those sorts of moments of joy, but there are many mo- moments in this life where that joy is, as Alexander Schmemann, the uh, Orthodox theologian, famously said, and we have repeated many times around the center, um, Christian joy appears to us as a, as, a, as a bright sorrow. So as Christians, when we rejoice, we rejoice in hope. And it strikes me that that's appropriate, especially to this season of Advent that we've been in. Historically, the season of Advent, yes, is for celebrating and remembering Christ's Advent, his, his coming to, entering into this world. But it also historically has always been a time of, of, of looking forward in hope to Christ's second coming, which probably doesn't get as much, much play these days. Um, maybe we've heard um, sort of unhelpfully pie in the sky preaching about the second coming, or we've always, only ever heard it connected with fire and brimstone or whatever it is. Maybe there are probably good reasons we don't, um, you know, don't hear all these huge eschatological sermons. But there's, there's something appropriately Advent, appropriately Christmas um, in, in our Christian worship. We should be, I take it, oriented toward that, that sense of hope because it, was, it, it wasn't just Mary and Joseph and the shepherds and, and the wise men and all the others who, were, who, who used to live in hope. Um, we too live, live in hope. Um, and so I think this, this Advent season is an opportunity for us to get back in touch with that, with that hope and remind ourselves that that is our orientation toward this world. We should rejoice. We should, our hearts should be glad when we think about the nearness of God in Jesus Christ and God's continued nearness to us in the spirit of the living Christ among us. But we should also be reminded in this season of, uh, of, of, of that hoped for reality in which um, God's nearness, God's presence to us is brought to its full consummation um, at the capital E end of all things. So there we have it. The Magi pushed willingly to the edge of their knowledge, open to the giving spirit of God. An illustration of Mary living in prayer, which proves just enough to know to say yes when met with her call. W.H. Auden's common Joseph asked only and profoundly to believe. And St. Paul offering an invitation to Christian joy that, well, differs from Santa's offer. Just a little. A conglomeration of Advent people, people who are waiting, people who are willing, Of course, these portraits don't hold all the Advent secrets of years past, but they can be exciting new ways into the wait, into the season of bright sorrow. Wherever you are and however you're celebrating Christmas this year, we hope these stories have brought you new food for thought and the knowledge that no matter your Advent and Christmas experience, you're not in it alone. And as 2022 comes to a close, we wish you a wonderful Advent, no matter its form, and a very Merry Christmas. Thanks for listening to For the Life of the World. For the Life of the World is a production of the Yale Center for Faith and Culture at Yale Divinity School. 
This episode featured Drew Collins, Frederica Matthews-Green, Jeff Reimer, and Matt Grosman. Production and editorial assistance by Macy Bridge. I'm Evan Rosa, and I edit and produce the show. For more information, visit us online at faith.yale.edu. If you're new to the show, welcome, friend. You can hit subscribe in your favorite podcast listening app. And if you've listened this long, we'd really love your feedback. Ratings and reviews and Apple Podcasts are really helpful for the show. And we take every bit of feedback constructively, hoping to improve. And if you're a regular listener and you're passionate about what we're trying to do on this podcast, we'd love for you to step up, partner with us, and help us share the show. Behind those three dots in your podcast app, there's an option to share the episode by text, over email, or social media. So if you took even a brief moment to send your favorite episode to a friend or share with the world, not only would you be supporting us in the show, you'd be opening up truth-seeking conversations about what it means to live a life worthy of our humanity with those humans that matter most to you. Thanks for listening today. We'll be back with more soon.